Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALWFM 91.7 San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. In recent months, there's been an uptick in the number of mass casualty shooting events. Despite the publicity surrounding two recent events occurring here in California, California has been said to have the most restrictive laws in the nation and has one of the lowest gun death rates, that is, measuring the number of gun deaths per 100,000 persons, we rank at the bottom seven in the nation. This week, our discussion continues as we take a look. Next week, our discussion continues as we take a look at some of these gun control measures. But tonight, we're discussing one of the tools to address gun violence before it happens, and that is the gun violence restraining order. A red flag law is a type of gun confiscation law. California's red flag law allows people in certain specified roles or with a, special, with a specified relationship to an individual to seek a gun violence restraining order to remove firearms from a person who has been deemed a threat to themselves or to someone else. But just what constitutes a threat and who's to decide? Few would argue with the notion of limiting firearms to folks already convicted of violent crime. Here we're talking about restricting a constitutionally protected right from someone who has not yet done anything wrong because someone predicts the person will harm himself or herself or maybe someone else sometime in the future. Just what are these restraining orders? Who can seek them? And what protections are already in place so that they're not issued indiscriminately? When is it enough to predict whether someone may at some point in the future pose a danger? Does it require a diagnosed mental illness or a criminal conviction? In California, any type of restraining order results in firearm exclusion for the duration of that order. In recent programs, we've already looked at obtaining and resisting civil restraining orders or orders under the Domestic Violence Prevention Act. And while we can take your basic questions on those orders, tonight we're focused on this one form of order, that which is exclusively and solely to prevent gun violence. Give us a call. There's much to discuss. And bear in mind that our attorney guest can't provide you with precise legal advice without all the facts relating to a given case. However, we're happy to pass along the legal principles to help assist in your decision-making. And while our legal guidance mightn't be the positions of our guests or their employers, or the, for that matter, their clients, they're all here to help. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. And again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866 798 8255. That's 866-798-8255. Returning to join us tonight, Lance Bayer is a municipal law attorney in private practice with an emphasis on code enforcement and personnel matters. Mr. Bayer has provided legal services on a contract basis and as an employee in numerous city attorney's offices and public agencies throughout California. He's also served as director of the Office of Citizens Complaints 
for the police commission for the city and county in San Francisco. For 15 years, Mr. Bayer served as a deputy district attorney in Santa Clara County. Lance has taught criminal law at San Jose State University and has taught at the police academies in Santa Clara and San Mateo counties. He is the author of a monthly training publication called The Reliable Informer. Mr. Bayer received his law degree from the University of Southern California. We will not hold that against him. And Lance, welcome back to your legal rights. Thank you very much. I'm going to start with the obvious question. What is California's red flag law? California adopted a law similar to many states that um, allows for certain parties to obtain um, what is called a gun violence restraining order. The gun violence restraining orders are divided into three categories. Um, One is an emergency order that is obtained by law enforcement officers at the scene of an incident where there is a concern that the um, person who is uh, suspected of potential violence is an immediate and present danger. The second is a temporary order that can be obtained for a limited period of time um, in order to um, address a potential danger where there's a substantial likelihood that the person uh, poses a significant danger and uh, uh, it is necessary to obtain such an order. Um, and that can be obtained by a wider group of people, including not only law enforcement, but family members, co-workers, uh, educators in some circumstances, um, roommates. Um, and the same is true with what we call a permanent order, but a permanent order actually lasts uh, between one and five years. And the permanent order has the heaviest um, standard of proof, which is clear and convincing evidence that has to be demonstrated uh, that the person poses a significant danger of injury to that person's self or others, and that less restrictive alternatives were ineffective ineffective or are inappropriate under the circumstances. And and more specifically, what is a gun violence restraining order? The order uh, states that the person cannot um, own or possess any firearms. And I believe under changes to California law, that includes um, uh, parts of certain firearms that could be assembled to make a firearm. And um, uh, the uh, prohibition um, means that the person must surrender any firearms that they currently own or possess, and for that period of time, they're prohibited from uh, purchasing or otherwise obtaining firearms. Um, That means that um, they will go onto a registry under the State Department of Justice. And so under those circumstances, um, if that person were to go to a gun store, they would find that they would be um, prohibited from purchasing a firearm. Now, we're jumping a little ahead and predicting 
whether in the future somebody's going to be a danger. How far out can they look? Well, this is this is the hardest part because we are not used to predicting behavior uh, in general. We don't know what's going to happen. I um, like to say that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, but there have been a number of studies about um, risk assessment and how to um, look at whether or not a person poses a risk under these circumstances. Um, It's different than mental illness. It's um, looking at a standard of whether the person uh, poses a danger um, and whether they will um, continue to pose a danger. You know, we've also spoken in recent programs of other types of restraining orders. For example, in a civil harassment restraining order, there's a you have to show a pattern, not just one act, and a high probability that such future harm will continue unless the order is granted. With a domestic violence restraining order, the burden of proof isn't quite as high, but you still have to show by a significant standard of evidence that stuff has been happening, it's continuing to happening, happen, and therefore there's a present danger. It doesn't sound like gun violence requires that pattern of conduct beforehand. It's really looking ahead and seeing a danger. That's correct. And so the court will look at a number of factors because they're looking to um, the kinds of things that would be um, predictive of future behavior. And uh, um, so in the statute itself, there are types of um, examples of behaviors um, that the court has to look at, like recent threats of violence, um, violation of a previous um, emergency protective order, um, or a conviction of certain criminal offenses, or a pattern of violent acts. But the court also can consider a whole number of different kinds of um, actions, um, and in fact can consider any evidence that might help a judge decide that the person poses an increased risk for violence, including um, the uh, way a person has used a firearm in the past or um, a history of use or threatened use of physical force, um, prior arrest for a felony, um, history of violations of certain orders, Um, documentary evidence of certain criminal offenses that have taken place. Um, All of these are the types of things that the court will look at. Um, Additionally, um, evidence such as recent acquisition of firearms, um, and those were only the list that the legislature put together, but the court can consider any reasonable evidence that uh, would lead towards a judge making findings that the person poses a danger in the future. And, of course, for this type of restraining order, does not require a criminal conviction. That's correct. And doesn't require mental illness. That's also correct. So somebody could not have suffered a criminal conviction, nor will are they diagnosed with any form of mental illness, but because of various triggers that might cause people to form 
an educated guess that you're going to pose a danger, ultimately you could fall into this. Right. And and the thing about this is that the legislature obviously was concerned about um, a number of uh, issues involving uh, use of firearms, but particularly involved in um, and, and concerned about um, mass shootings. So um, obviously we're doing the best we can to present um, an objective judge with um, information that the judge will find predicts in the future, but it doesn't require a diagnosis of mental illness and it does not require a criminal conviction. And similarly, from the other side, if I've got a neighbor that's jumping out and terrorizing my kids, I don't have to show that he's been convicted or offer evidence that perhaps I don't have that he or she is mentally ill. They can look at other factors that show that maybe this person shouldn't have firearms. That's correct. And uh, we do see cases like that. The The categories of people who can obtain orders um, don't include neighbors. So a neighbor in those circumstances would contact the local police department or sheriff's office and provide them with the information. And uh, that information would be put into a report and it would... Um, be determined whether or not uh, there would be um, a request for a um, temporary order or um, if it's serious enough for an emergency order. We know that restraining orders in general, civil restraining orders, domestic violence restraining orders prevent somebody from having a gun, but they would apply to a gun dealer who has to ask before they could sell you anything. Are you subject to one of those orders? Does this type of restraining order also apply to the gun dealers? Um, it does not directly address the gun dealers other than they are prohibited from selling to people who are on the prohibited um, lists that are prepared by the Department of Justice. And that would include people that are subject to a gun violence restraining order as it does the domestic violence or civil harassment restraining orders. That's correct. Suppose somebody is either looking to obtain one of these orders, a household member that seems to not be as stable as they once were, or maybe somebody wants to resist one of these orders. Do they need an attorney? Not necessarily. Um, The um, California Judicial Council um, prepares uh, forms that are used um, in order to obtain and in order to oppose uh, these orders, and uh, uh, people are able to appear in court on their own um, with or without an attorney, and uh, uh, as far as the um, uh, court websites, they provide helpful information as well as the um, California um, State Court website, which also directs individuals to those forms that the California Judicial Council prepares so that individuals can use self-help in order to do that. And for those that are looking for those forms, you could find them at the CalCourts info page at https www.courts.ca.gov. They have specific pages for info, which is 
courts.ca.gov slash documents slash gv100info.pdf. And anybody that has a question about these can write to this to me, ylr at kalw.org. I'll be happy to pass along the information. The court's website, the district attorney in San Francisco has an information page that's quite informative. Happy to pass along these resources to you. So I'm looking to get these to protect a family member from themselves. What kind of fees am I going to incur? My understanding is that the court does not charge any type of filing fee uh, so that these orders can be sought without having to um, incur any specific costs other than um, if it's necessary to um, uh, use a a private process server. But my understanding also is that um, there is a public process server who will serve these documents on an individual um, if requested. Now, one of the questions I always ask when we're talking about the courts stepping in and restricting a protected right, what measures are in place to make sure that this is only used when necessary? I mean, I imagine as in any legal process, it is subject to abuse. What's there to protect us? This is a very serious issue because um, the United States Supreme Court has held that um, the uh, right to uh, possess firearms is a fundamental constitutional right. And uh, it's critical that uh, the legislature and the courts not interfere with that right um, in a manner that would... uh, interfere with the Supreme Court's decision. But the legislature enacted these laws um, in a way that set up a very high standard so that for an emergency order, the standard is lower than for a temporary order. And the temporary order, the standard is less than a um, permanent order, which is the one to five year order. And in looking at the one to five year order, um, the standard is what's called clear and convincing evidence, and that is a reasonably high standard. It's somewhere between the uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that is required for a criminal conviction and the standard of preponderance of the evidence, whether one side outweighs the other side, that is the standard for um, most civil cases. So it is a high standard. Uh, it's a burden that the person seeking the order, whether it's a police department or whether it's an individual. Um, it's a, a high burden and standard that must be met. And uh, uh, that is uh, the best protection uh, at this point that we have to ensure that an individual is not um, subject to one of these orders um, uh, to interfere with um, legitimate constitutional rights. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we're discussing gun violence restraining orders. If you need help or are just interested, perhaps you're looking out for someone. My guest, Lance Bayer, is here to help. 
If you have questions for my guest, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, it's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. That is anything on restraining orders. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. So let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Just how are these orders supposed to prevent gun violence as a practical matter? I mean, it's so easy to obtain a firearm. And if the person's determined to harm others, will a TR really dissuade him or her? It's not a perfect system, but the court order is intended to um, make it much more difficult for that person to uh, obtain firearms. Uh, obviously, there are firearms that are bought and sold um, privately where um, uh, gun dealers and uh, registration is not necessarily considered but this is intended to uh, do the best we can in, in an uncertain uh, uh, world and uh, uh, that it is the best that we can uh, think of at this point. So even if it only prevents a certain amount on the margin, the fact is that's maybe one act or some acts that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. Correct. And uh, – in some cases, the police are authorized to um, search a residence based on the initial order and a search warrant. Um, and based on that search warrant, um, California state law allows a judge to um, authorize a search warrant to um, go and search the residence of somebody who is the subject of an emergency order. Let me turn it to Bill from Daly City. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm, I've heard about this case on NPR, and I think it could be related to the gun restraining order. Uh, a woman had a domestic violence restraining order against her husband, and uh, he violated it a couple of times, and then maybe the third time he actually called her up before he came over and said he was going to kill her. She immediately called the police and told them, and uh, they didn't believe her. And I don't know why she didn't just run out and escape, but anyway, he came over and did kill her. And uh, one of her relatives sued the police for not acting, and um, they were cleared because apparently the police do not have to act. Uh, I don't know why. It's, it's. I know it says to protect and to serve on their uh, cars. But uh, anyway, I'm wondering if someone um, got a, a, a gun restraining order against someone else and that other person did get a gun and did threaten someone, and the one who got the order called the police, do the police have to act? The answer is, um, under most circumstances, no. 
the what well, let me what's the good what's the purpose of it then? well well let let him answer you bill and let me ask oh. you one question real quick before do you know if this case on NPR took place in California I don't it may make a difference but I'll let my guests go ahead and answer right so under most circumstances uh, police officers are given a wide discretion as to what cases are enforced and what cases are not, as long as they use their discretion properly, and uh, particularly not for a discriminatory purpose. But as far as these um, calls that the police get, um, they do the best they can. And until they get to a point where they reassure, where they assure or reassure someone that they are going to take exclusive action and that the person should not do anything on their own to help, um, under most of those circumstances, um, police departments are going to be um, uh, not subject to um, someone prevailing in a lawsuit. Um, that does not mean that police do not have um, duties that are established for them, and it does not mean that they uh, do not have uh, provisions in their um, policies and procedures where they are required to act um, under their department policies and would be disciplined uh, for that internally. Um, it simply means that um, uh, under many circumstances where you might think that a law enforcement agency could get um, subject to a uh, uh, lawsuit uh, where a party would uh, be able to prevail, uh, California law does not provide for that because there are so many decisions that law enforcement officers have to make in the field. Bill, the way you phrased your question, you really asked if the police have to act, and it sounded right. as though you were questioning about whether they would be subject to a lawsuit. And in most circumstances, the police have qualified immunity, which basically means they're entitled to make mistakes as long as they made their decisions for the right reasons. And if they acted with an improper purpose or failed to act for an improper reason, particularly if, if there's a showing that there's either not been training and, as, and it's a systemic problem or alternatively uh, that they're in violation of the established policies that may subject the department or in the latter the individual officers to some civil liability. But when you talk about orders in general, you're normally speaking about empowering them to do things that they would not have been able to do. So, for example, when you have a domestic violence restraining order and somebody's supposed to stay away or a civil harassment restraining order and someone's supposed to stay away, the officers might not otherwise have enough information to act when there's a he said, she said about what happened and there's no apparent way to, to really sort it out. But with those orders in place, if they're not allowed to be there, you're empowering them to make the right decision if the person's where they shouldn't be. That's that's exactly true. The other the other part of this is that um, law enforcement have been given a whole uh, num uh, number of tools to act, particularly in domestic violence situations. Um, I've been practicing law for well over 40 years and when I started, um, there were only uh, arrest or don't re arrest. Now there are uh, domestic uh, 
violence prevention orders and gun violence restraining orders. I see. Okay, well, it sounds like uh, sort of a high bar to get the police to commit, but uh, I understand the theory behind it. So thank you very much. There's an argument to be made, Bill, that whether the state of the law is appropriate or not, the bar may be too high as far as achieving liability for police officers. That's probably the topic for another program. This is one tool in the quiver that they or affected individuals might be able to use. And when you start talking about liability, whether it's police or the judiciary or the prosecutors, really anyone in government, that's really the topic of another show. And it is a show I'm very interested in in bringing back. Yes, well, I I guess it helps that the general public is not aware of this and believes that the police will come. So maybe that belief acts as enforcement. And frankly, they do come particularly in areas that are less busy. When you start getting into the suburbs, you're much more likely to get a police response. And when you're in some of the bigger cities in the area, it's much more likely that somebody's doing a quick risk assessment and deciding whether there's something that has to happen right now because they've got five or six other hot buttons to be working on. That makes sense, yeah. Okay, well, well thank, thanks again. Bill, thank you for joining us in Your Legal Rights. Come back anytime. And you're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And you're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. And tonight, we're talking about gun violence restraining orders. If you need help, or you're just interested, perhaps you're looking out for someone, my guest Lance Bayer is here to help. If you have questions for my guest, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, our toll-free number is 866 798-8255. And again, that's 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic, really anything you want to talk about restraining orders. You don't have to join in the exact point we may be in our conversation. And with that, Lance, let me jump and ask you, who decides if somebody should be deemed a threat? I mean, who listens to it and What kind of standards are they supposed to follow? Well, we start with um, law enforcement, and I'm going to assume that we're talking about an order that is requested of a police department or a sheriff's office, and uh, uh, that would be uh, transmitted to the um, department either through a call to the police department or somebody showing up or police responding to somebody's residence and... uh, um, conducting an investigation. 
uh, the police departments have a lot of different skills that they've developed in trying to predict this behavior. So, for example, um, one of the things that um, law enforcement uh, departments have um, developed is uh, what are called threat assessment teams. And those teams involve uh, training in risk and threat assessment. There's research that has been conducted, including research that was done by the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit. Um, There are publications that they can rely on in looking at the risk factors. And so um, in addition to the um, obvious situation of somebody making a credible threat um, and uh, somebody who commits a um, assault and is predicted from past behavior to future behavior, there are a number of risk factors, including history of violence, um, some types of mental illness, personality disturbance or disorder, ownership of a number of weapons, um, people who live in isolation or have um, certain type of instability in their lives. There are warning behaviors such as research and planning, preparation, um, identification of warning behavior that um, um, officers can see. Um, There are certain triggers that um, would indicate that something would be on the verge of happening. Um, And the courts obviously have their standard and I read earlier the list of um, the shall consider and may consider um, areas of the court. But here, I'll give you an example, and this is something that happened in an actual case, Um, and this is from an actual police report. Um, The officer wrote, um, while walking through the apartment for evidence related to an armed robbery, which turned out to be a hoax, The officer's attention was drawn to the word stalk on a handwritten note on the person's bookshelf. This note was divided into four sections. The first was a list of nearby cities with labels, work, home, and alt. The next section was labeled options. Um, It contained words like lure with a fake profile, hire a pro, stalk, and drugs. The third section was labeled scope, and the last section was labeled flow and listed lure and action and dispose at three, whatever that meant. And to the officer who had been trained in risk risk analysis, and there aren't that many officers who have that training now, but based on um, that officer's training, um, the list appeared to suggest that the person was planning on luring or stalking some unknown person. So the police department is going to be looking at all the factors, but the most serious cases involve somebody where there's actually indications that they are engaging in planning or some type of um, active uh, uh, interest in committing a violent assault. Um, It's my feeling that this particular case that I'm mentioning here, um, that the court order that we received did um, 
successfully prevent what could have been an active shooter situation. So you've convinced me. I know somebody, I really think that turning it over would, maybe getting one of these orders, is going to save a lot of lives potentially. What do I need to do? Walk me through the process. Well, if you're one of the people in the categories that we've talked about, which is um, family members, um, educators under some circumstances, coworkers, roommates, um, those individuals um, uh, should look, at, first of all, at contacting their local law enforcement agency. But if the person wants to do it on their own, um, they would look at the forms that are set out in the um, uh, Judicial Council uh, website and uh, start preparing the forms. Um, one of the questions that um, they're going to need to answer is, is there a way to find the person who is posing the threat? Because sometimes a person may pose a threat and there's limited information. Who is that person? What's their name? Where do they live? Uh, how can they be served with a copy of an order? So you want to be thinking about how that person can be identified, how that person can be served with an order. Then the other part of it that's the most important is looking at the factors that would go towards meeting the standards either for an emergency order, which has to be obtained by law enforcement, or a temporary order, which would be the initial way that many cases might be um, uh, started by an individual or family member, or a permanent order. And uh, there's a space for the um, individual who's seeking the order to write a description of the reasons why the order is sought under penalty of perjury. And that is what initiates the action. Um, and then eventually there uh, would be a hearing in front of a judge in order to establish whether or not the standard of proof could be met. And I did want to ask you, tell me a little bit about the judges who do these. Is it judges or commissioners? And what's the difference? Well, it can be heard by either a judge or a commissioner. Um, commissioners are um, uh, – they have the same powers in, in many situations as superior court judges. Uh, but uh, in many counties, the judge who hears these uh, uh, gun violence restraining order um, requests – um, are experienced judges who handle these on a regular basis. Um, I have uh, seen judges assigned to these cases who are extremely experienced and understand the standards of proof, um, and that, in my opinion, is the best way for um, a court to hear these cases. And just what does a gun violence restraining order do? It is an order from the court, and that order from the court um, requires the person to relinquish any firearms in their possession and then prohibits them from 
owning or possessing any firearms for the term of the order, either the emergency order, which would be until the next hearing date, or the temporary order, which would be typically for a short term, such as 21 days. And then finally, um, the permanent order, which is from one year to five years. We're used to other restraining orders that do other things. For example, will this order protect someone such as keeping the person away from the person seeking the order? It doesn't do that. It's not a stay-away order. It's not a um, prohibition against um, a particular uh, actions towards a particular victim. Um, I do want to mention, though, that um, the order is uh, punishable by um, not only uh, an order that the person is contempt, in contempt of court, but it's also, uh, I believe, it's a crime to uh, violate these orders. And uh, if a person is in violation, the punishment uh, can include some serious uh, penalties uh, under the law. Can the mere illegal possession of a firearm, such as a teenager who finds one and they're not of legal age. Is that a basis to obtain one of these orders? No, because we're predicting future violence. So California has a number of different ways to deal with uh, uh, firearms violations and sets up a number of different types of prohibitions. Some of them have to do with um, persons who are underage. Some of them have to do with um, possession of a concealed firearm or a loaded firearm in a public place. And so under those circumstances, the uh, uh, law establishes uh, separate types of violations that are subject to enforcement. Now, a listener has handed me a question that there may be limits on how far you can answer this. But, You know, violence prevention orders are most commonly thought of in domestic violence situations. But what about the mass murder situation? And the person specifically was asking about um, Half Moon Bay. If you prefer, you can address the one that happened in Monterey Park. But the question is, how could a gun restraining order have potentially prevented the disgruntled worker in Half Moon Bay or perhaps the disgruntled person in Monterey Park from stockpiling his weapons and moving on. These are tragic situations, and it's a challenge to prevent tragic situations. And uh, the legislature, the courts, and law enforcement, and city attorney's offices, and county council's offices are uh, struggling with this phenomenon of the mass shooting and and how to deal with the mass shooting. Um, what we what we're looking at is uh, prevention as one uh, thing that will help in dealing with these situations. And if you catch someone early on who poses a threat, and you start taking action when there are indications that the person um, is going to pose a threat, then under some circumstances, hopefully under many circumstances, we can do something about this. So perhaps a, another way of saying it is 
don't think of this as the ultimate solution, but it is one more arrow in a quiver. Absolutely. We still need more arrows in the quiver, but this is at least one. Right. And and the legislature and the courts and the um, prosecutors um, and uh, city attorneys and county councils, we're all struggling with this to try to find the right tools to deal with a certain situation. In some cases, we don't want to get a gun violence restraining order because um, a person is going to be facing criminal charges that will result in the person having a lifetime prohibition against owning or possessing firearms and probably an order that they are subject to search and seizure, which means that um, without a warrant, a peace officer or a probation officer um, can search them and search their residence to see if there are any firearms. Let me turn it to Mary in Oakland. Mary, you're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a question that you were maybe answered a little bit um, just now, but um, basically the, uh, I I got involved in a situation because a friend of mine had an attempted break-in in her house, and it was a young woman crouching on her porch with a gun, and when my friend came home, um, the woman shot through the door, ended up, like, my friend got in her house and locked her screen door, her security door, but her dog ran up, and the woman shot her dog and killed her dog. Um, Police did not arrive for almost two hours, (laughs) which is a little crazy. But, um, so she just had her hearing, my friend just had her hearing with the woman who, the woman didn't leave. She sort of collapsed on the couch with the gun, and our friends arrived, and held the situation down until the police arrived. The woman was arrested. She had an illegal gun. I was, you know, she was charged with an illegal gun and an extended magazine and animal cruelty and shooting into an occupied house. And then after the hearing, she was only charged with shooting into an occupied house. That's the only point she got. And I'm just trying to understand why this all happened like a couple of days ago she had her hearing. I'm trying to understand what the rule is for an illegal gun and these huge magazines that people are getting. She had like 20 bullets in the gun and why why there was no charge made on that specific thing that seems to me a really big issue for um the situation. I mean, I guess it was her first time. She was 25 years old. She wasn't underage. So they didn't, you know, they wanted to give her, she got three months in jail, I guess, including time served, which is almost a month already. So it's like, a. basically, I'm wondering, like, will she be prevented from having a gun ever in the future since she used a gun to shoot, kill a dog and to shoot into somebody's house? And I'm also wondering why Oakland did not, you know, this is based on my friend's telling of this. I haven't checked in with the district attorney, but I'm trying to understand why no charges were being, she was not being charged for what we thought was a big deal in California, which is these ghost guns or these illegal guns and these extended magazines. Well, maybe I could jump in on that one for you, Mary. Uh, You're really not discussing the restraining order per se, as much as you are a criminal prosecution. 
and as in all criminal prosecutions, the sheer volume of cases going through, most cases don't go to trial. Most cases end up settling for some of the charges, maybe few of the charges, in order to really establish some boundaries for the person, get them on probation, kind of restrict their restrict what they can do. Um, I can tell you that if this person was convicted of a 246 of the penal code, that's again, if she's convicted of shooting into an occupied dwelling, she has to give up firearms and we'll never get them back. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Uh, under a couple other reasons other than this type of restraining order. Um, You could check with the prosecution, it's very likely there was some form of mitigation that was presented, some reason why she deserved a, a, a fairly, well, in most places we considered a fairly light sentence. Three months in jail means she probably got sentenced to six months, is, pro, is undoubtedly on formal probation where they'll be watching her for I believe three to five years, this is a violent felony you're describing. So mm-hmm. the normal probation limit of two years wouldn't apply. Okay. So there's there's a lot of moving parts. It's really hard to go into second-guessing a particular case on this brief conversation we're having. But the likelihood is they presented some form of mitigation. It could have been that she was suffering from a mental illness, delusions, or um, maybe she was yeah, she, inebriated she at the did, time and couldn't form the requisite intent? We, well, she did claim a, a mental, you know, break or whatever, and she did probably was on drugs. But I guess I think... my I guess my main concern is, like, is there really solid follow-up like yes okay first offender young woman probably was put up to it well i can't really stay i can't really stay on this case too long with you but i will tell you that if she's placed on formal probation she's reporting to a probation officer frequently if not weekly and they're keeping her on a pretty tight regimen and if she was sent for whatever reason to a mental health court they're also making sure she's maintaining her sobriety and maintaining her medication. Okay. Yeah, that was probably my main concern is, like, is she really going to get better if that is really the case? You know what I mean? Absolutely. But, um, well, I, I really have yeah. to cut us off. We're just about out of time. I do have one last question I need to ask before we call a night. But if you write me privately at YLR at org, I can carry on this conversation with you after. K-A-L- okay, why just the letter? Y-L-R, like your legal rights, uh-huh. at K-A-L-W dot O-R-G. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. All right. And one last question I wanted to ask you. I want to reserve some time for your final remarks. But what evidence is there, if any, that gun violence prevention orders, and that's whether in California or whether some of the other states have adopted it, had actually saved lives or prevented some serious injuries. Um, The obvious inference is whether they've made a significant difference. And my suspicion is that if these have been in place in various places, 
maybe some intercepts or something might have given us a clue that some of this was was actually working. We're never going to have good statistics on how many lives have been saved by the use of the gun violence restraining orders. But what we do know is, uh, such as the example that I gave of the uh, person who um, had a note that uh, used words like stalk and uh, uh, lure, that we know that there are people who pose a danger out in the community where we see a bunch of different factors that convince us that this person does pose a threat. Um, If the person has not committed a crime and the person is not subject to a restraining order, then really what we have is Um, an additional tool to deal with this person where there aren't any other tools. So what I would suggest about gun violence restraining orders, and I'm fortunate enough to have had experience with obtaining the orders in um, different counties throughout the Bay Area. It is one tool. It has an advantage over other tools because it can deal with somebody who's not necessarily facing criminal charges or otherwise subject to uh, different procedures. But it does give us an opportunity to do something and to do something based on solid evidence that the person does objectively uh, pose a threat. And with the courts taking an active interest in these types of orders, we do have the potential that lives can be saved. And uh, that's why I feel that the gun violence restraining orders are one valuable tool in the efforts to address gun violence, which has been uh, increasing throughout the country. At some point, can the person get their firearm back? They can petition to get their firearm back or the term of the uh, gun violence order expires and is not renewed. It can be renewed, but if it's not renewed, they will be able to get firearms, the right to own and possess firearms back, and they will um, get seized firearms back as well. So if they turn them over to law enforcement, they will eventually be returned to them if the order lapses? If the order is no longer in effect, then the person would be eligible to receive their firearms back. And in the event they're granted, they ever get the chance to sell them or maybe turn them over to a gun dealer so that they can be sold? That would be something that the city or the county would uh, be able to work with them to decide whether or not that's a viable possibility. And we have about 90 seconds left, maybe as long as two minutes, for any closing remarks, any advice you have. Um, My advice is that if um, anybody perceives that there's a credible threat of violence, whether it's gun violence, whether it is um, other types of violence, please contact law enforcement and let law enforcement officers know what you're experiencing and they will hopefully work with you in order to address the issue Um, either by giving you sound advice um, or otherwise by helping you to get 
um, the um, court involved, if necessary, such as with a gun violence restraining order. And in the event that you're in one of those arenas where they're not going to take the lead, some of the resources that we we spoke of earlier, such as the uh, California Courts Info page or the California Courts uh, actual forms to decide this. If you simply Google the phrase gun violence restraining order, you'll find excellent resources from the courts, from gun safety organizations such as Speak for Safety, from the DA's office in San Francisco. On their page, they have resources for California's red flag laws. And if you want to make it easier, just type in California GVRO. Gun violence restraining order, but easier to remember. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight, we've been discussing gun violence restraining orders. My guest tonight has been municipal law attorney Lance Bayer. Next week on Your Legal Rights, we conclude our discussion on these recent mass shootings and ask the question whether gun control really holds the answer. A big thanks tonight for tonight's guest, Lance Baer, and to all of you for listening. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Thank you, be safe, and have a great night. KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.